This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queen's College. I'm Leslie Hinkson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Our website is theannexpodcast.com. That's The Annex Podcast. Uh, We're on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter at SociAnnex. Uh, There was a little bit of uh, a lively exchange on uh, Twitter this morning with Karen Healy. (laughs) Gabriel? Yeah, yeah. so uh, Kieran had some funny responses to my R rant from the first episode. And I I created a, a Twitter moment, so basically like the new version of Storify. Uh, and I put the link to that in the show notes for the first episode. And also, you know, one of my big complaints about R was that the tutorials don't get to the point of how to load data, which I see as like the most basic thing. But uh, Kieran pointed out to us that his new book on doing graphics in R does it on the 16th page, uh, which means it passes the Rossman seal of approval, as does uh, Chris Bale was just telling me about um, Kosuko Imai's uh, new book, uh, Quantitative Social Science, which uh, I checked, and the read.csv function appears on page 21. So I approve of both Healy and Emi's R tutorials, and if we get more R tutorials like that, I might give it another shot. The Gabriel Rossman seal of approval. We'll put that exchange on the show page. It was so darn funny. Today, we have our first guest, uh, Daniel Friedman from uh, the University of Texas at Austin. He has a new book out. Uh, with Stanford, Freedom from Work, Embracing Financial Self-Help in the United States and Argentina. Uh, It should be good. I'm looking forward to our first guest. Yeah, so am I. I'd like to know how to be free from work. So, All right. Well, what's going on, guys? I I wanted to talk about something that I've been thinking about since the ASAs this year. I went to that uh, director of grad study session. And this year, it was it was more squarely focused on the PhD programs, which wasn't really targeted towards departments like us. But I went anyways, see what's going on in the uh, grad uh, sociology grad program business. And uh, I'm hearing a lot of people talking to people. And I got a sense that there's a pushback against the idea that PhD programs should be construed as some form of job training. Right. And I'm not saying this is everybody's view, but like there seems to be a non-trivial sort of following within social grad program admin circles. There's they're sort of poo-pooing the idea that uh, we're training PhDs for jobs. What do you guys think about that? You know, I, I thought that that was what PhD programs, <laughs> especially in this competitive environment, were meant to be doing, right? I mean, I remember even when we were in grad school, I mean, I do remember that people would kind of give Princeton social side eye and say things like, oh yeah, you guys are so hyper-professionalized, by which I thought they meant that we were being prepared to get jobs. As someone who actually opted out of of most of the professionalization in graduate school, Obviously, we're there to, to think and to learn. Um, but I actually also think, you know, that's not enough. That's not enough to help you land a job. It's not enough to help you get tenure. I, I, don't, I don't even see what graduate school would be for if it's not for ultimately training you into a profession. Now, I'm open-minded about whether it should be training you to get into the profession. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that maybe I, like, I mean, we fundamentally have a, what the Marxists would call a crisis of overproduction in PhDs, where the top 10 departments produce about, I don't know, eight to 12 um, new PhDs every year, but they only hire one. So, yeah. you know, and then even if you say, well, there's other departments that don't produce PhDs, we still have too many PhDs produced given how many new PhDs we need. And so I could I, I could see saying, well, maybe we should be training it so that the expectation is not you get an academic job, but we have more of a, you'll go into the private sector. Or, you know, you're not just learning sociology to be a sociology professor, but to be a data scientist or a marketing researcher. So I'd be totally fine with that in principle. But to say you should be training to get a job at all, it's like, what the fuck is this then? A six to eight year vision quest to well, find yourself yeah, in your 20s? Yeah. Well, that's how I feel about it. But let's forget about even the academic job, going for the academic job. What about orienting a doctoral program towards a private sector 
work. I mean, I, the psychologists, a lot of them are doing clinical work and sort of non-academic work. And I think that's a strength of their discipline. I'd be totally for that, especially since I think like that myopic view that a lot of PhD programs have, not just in terms of training you for an academic job, but it must be at an R1 institution. That's how specific it is, right? And it's got to be a top 20 R1 institution. Um, I think that that's totally misguided. I, I, I think that the people who are training us have to be more open-minded about where we might go after our training. Uh, maybe, look, maybe it's just, the problem is, is that we all come from a similar background. So I wonder if there's sort of a counter argument to be made, but uh, I'm all for training for jobs. I mean, I heard that uh, we were, one of the speakers at the session said there are over a hundred sociology PhD programs in uh, the United States. And I don't see the, you know, what's on the jobs board at the ASA as being able to absorb uh, most of them or even a, a sizable number of them. Well, you got to realize a lot of those are nominally uh, like my understanding is that um, obviously you have this kind of like the top 10, top 20, where they regularly produce, you know, five to 12 PhDs every year. But I think once you get much below that, a lot of those schools don't regularly produce a substantial cohorts of PhDs. Um, you know, some schools are nominally doctoral programs, but they might turn out a PhD every few years. So it's not as if, you know, I mean, if you kind of have your mental image of, you know, eight PhDs per program times 100, that's 800. Yeah. I, I don't think it's really 800 fresh sociology PD, PhDs every year. I think it's bad, but I don't think it's not. I don't think it's that bad. I, I, I wonder what the numbers are. Well, all right. Well, it looks like there's not much... Uh... Much, not much divisiveness on this topic. <laughs> no, yeah. not not amongst us. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> if you if you if you do have an argument against the professionalized PhD, let us know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, who wants to go next? Uh, sure, I'll go next. I actually wanted to talk about housing as a right. Right. Mm. I mean, I know it's not enshrined in our constitution, but. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this for two reasons, for three reasons, right? Number one, you know, Bernie Sanders coming out, you know, with his plan for um, for universal health care. Um, I also just got contacted by the D.C. Public Library. Um, they wanted some advising on a project that they're doing, you know, basically trying to study the homeless population that spends such a, a large chunk of their times in the public libraries um, across D.C. And number three, just, uh, you know, I live actually not too far from a homeless shelter that houses families. And, you know, it just and, and it's just made me think, you know, why like why isn't housing just sort of a basic good that we provide to the people who live in this country. Well, I mean, we're supposed to, right, with with the vouchers program, although it's really underfunded. Woefully. Yeah. And then uh, there, there are some things. This, this is a topic that I, I took a look at. You know, the, so there there is a lot of housing. Sometimes the problem isn't necessarily like the availability of structures to live indoors, but it's, you know, there's some very, very, there's some very inexpensive housing that's available, you know, somewhere in the country. Uh, sometimes the problem is uh, getting housing that has access to work, or uh, has a, a, is not distressed, like it's uh, public services are in order or its schools are good. And once we get into that type of question, we're talking about uh, housing of a certain quality. Are you talking about like a certain level of quality housing or just the ability to sleep indoors? Uh, well, I mean, I think as, you know, the wealthiest nation in the world, right? Um, I, you should at least have plumbing and a refrigerator and, uh, you know, stuff like that and not have, have rodents running around. Mm. Why can't well, we I, do that? Well, I, I have a few thoughts on this. So some of them are kind of normative and some of them are kind of empirical. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the normative is fair because you framed it as a normative question. I, so, I did. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, goose gander, right? <laughs> so uh, on the normative side, I, I kind of feel like positive rights ultimately break down and can get kind of incoherent at a certain point. And uh, it's generally more uh, meaningful to have negative rights 
uh, when you're framing them as rights. I believe in redistribution and an active welfare state and that sort of thing. But and I don't know whether I prefer that take the form of a UBI or whether it take the form of our current hodgepodge of SNAP and Section 8 and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But um, I do think there's room for that sort of thing. But fundamentally, I think our problem, for, my problem with affordable housing is framing it as affordable housing is usually the wrong uh, perspective. So if I could make an example, people sometimes talk about like, oh, the United States doesn't have a media policy or an arts policy because we don't have a ministry of culture like most other countries do. Mm-hmm. But we do have a, an arts and media policy. It's just run by the FCC and the Library of Congress in the form of copyright law rather than being run by some type of ministry of culture. So we have a set of policies that radically affects uh, cultural policy, but we don't think of them as cultural policy. We think of them as intellectual property policy uh, and that sort of thing, or uh, telecommunications and spectrum policy. So back to the issue of housing, my problem with, when we talk about affordable housing, we have in mind things like housing projects or Section 8 or various types of subsidies. And fundamentally, it's an issue of zoning in that there's zoning policies that make it too hard to build housing, you know, and very often these these housing policies in the form of like affordable housing policies make these things worse and that they add on regulatory requirements to building new housing where it says you can't build an apartment building unless you build, you know, affordable units as part of the building, which is effectively putting a tax on new construction, which is the last thing you'd want to do if you're actually trying to solve the problem of uh, creating more increasing the housing supply, right? I mean, our fundamental problem in places like San Francisco and for that matter, Washington, D.C., is there's it's very hard to do new construction. And uh, so D.C. has like a height minimum. But or, Gabriel, that, that's, gonna, that's a problem if you're going to rely on the public sector to build your housing. I mean, there's nothing stopping the government from uh, building uh, public housing, making a, a really strong investment in public housing and transportation. You said, do you mean it was a problem if you're going to rely on the private sector? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think we're going to have a five-year plan for uh, steel production and, um, you know, public housing projects. And I think the last thing we need is like Corbusier-style towers, like in the 60s. I mean, that was a, that didn't work. And there's a reason we blew all those things up. I think that's, so I think that's right. But I mean, number one, there are places, right, that are making that are making these zoning requirements work, right? So I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, and mm-hmm. there's been this huge, huge building boom, right? Yeah. In these luxury high rises, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there is a pretty generous set aside, you know, that the county says, if you're going to build, right, then you have to set aside, and I forget what the percentage is, for low income for low income residents. And, that works. I mean, that's not going to solve the entire problem, but that's one way of helping to get the, the private sector um, to do their job. And then the second thing is, you know, I've just finished this book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that he documents in his history of um, residential segregation is, you know, kind of the government's role like very active role actually in in creating these patterns of residential segregation that we have today and one of the one of the things that he shows is that the federal government would fund construction for housing that was for all whites right and then you know in another community for only blacks right and there would be not enough housing for blacks right there would be huge vacancy rates right, in the housing for whites, right? Um, But, you know, people weren't allowed, weren't allowed to say, they'd rather actually take the L and just say, okay, fine, I guess we have these huge vacancy rates. And I look around with this housing boom that we have in the DC area, and I'm like, I know, I know all of these places aren't occupied. You know, couldn't we at least use some of these places, right, to, to get people homes, right? even if just temporarily until they could get a job, until they could do whatever it, it, it was they needed to do in order to get, you know, permanent housing. You can you can build homes. The other thing you can do is you can extend uh, public transportation systems. I remember uh, looking at this when I was dealing with the question of uh, how difficult it is to find affordable housing in uh, 
in places where 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 there are jobs and, and uh, in many states they don't invest very heavily in public transportation and uh, you have to afford a, a car and a house and it, be, it becomes well beyond the means of 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 people who, who who just don't earn much so Gabe the other thing is with this idea about the uh, the towers and the public housing projects of yesteryear my understanding is that there's some novel configurations for public housing like for example I remember being in Philadelphia and seeing a public housing project go up that looked like uh, townhouses and uh, so I, I don't know if the failure of, of public housing is, necessarily that it was the government that invested in it but they had that when the government did invest in it they they might not have had uh you know the best model for doing these things well i i mean i'm not a housing expert right but my instinct would be that the simpler thing to do is to have the government concentrate on things that really do require the government like public transportation and uh, zoning and things like that and basically to make it easier for for-profit uh developers to you know, build housing and do so without having to accrue political favors and run patronage uh, machines and things like that. I also feel like you you want to have it so that it's possible to have more flexibility in what counts as housing. Like a little earlier, uh, Leslie was talking about like, well, what quality of the housing should it be? Mm-hmm. And um, Leslie and I in grad school lived mm-hmm. in a shithole, uh, <laughs> you know, and I loved but, it. Yeah, well, but you, yeah, see, right? And I'm nostalgic for it too. The like the actual housing. I mean, so um, those of you know, there are five listeners who didn't actually go to graduate school with us and go to dinner parties in these places. Uh, at the time, Leslie and I lived in the Butler Apartments, which were basic, which was basically a trailer park about a mile from uh, Princeton that was originally built in 1946 for. Uh, uh, army officers to take classes at the university after World War II, and it was built as temporary housing. And, you know, each each unit was about 600 square feet. It was very poorly insulated, so it was freezing cold in the winter. And But on the other hand, it costs like $500 a month at a time when private sector rent would be about 1300 And Joe, did you live in like Hib and Maggie or what? Uh, I lived in the old GC, and then I was in uh, the annex uh, near the old bookstore. Not the bar. Not the bar. Yeah, not the bar. <laughs> the, the, the houses, that's right. So, uh, you know, the university also had some fairly modern apartments that were built in, I don't know, the 70s. And those, the rent was like two or three times higher than it was in um, Butler Apartments. And we're talking something like 600 versus like 1500 a month. And Hib and Maggie was still cheaper than the private sector rents. So, you know, Hib and Maggie was a nicer place to live. It was a modern building. And I don't think you would have been able to build Butler if it was new and not, you know, this leftover thing from 1946. But on the other hand, you know, there were a lot of grad students, uh, me included, and I, you know, apparently Leslie included, uh, who preferred to live there because it was so cheap. And similarly, I don't think you're going to solve um, problems like homelessness by saying we have to have a high quality of housing that we build. I think you're going to solve it by being somewhat flexible as to what uh, is allowed for housing because it's better than being on the street, right? We could have like a dorm style model. And one of the problems uh, with homelessness is that it, there were zoning regulations and uh, health regulations that shut down a lot of SROs. Now, SROs are a terrible place to live. What are what are SROs? Can you tell us? Single-room occupancy. So if you remember in the Blues Brothers, when he gets out of prison and his brother takes him to live with him, mm. and, he, and he lives in like a closet, and there's like all these like sketchy guys hanging out in the day room, that's an mm. SRO. Okay. So, you know, a, a lot of guys who today would be homeless in the 60s or 70s or like the early 80s when that movie was made would have lived in SROs and paid like $15 a month or whatever the you know, inflation adjusted version of it would be. And I wouldn't want to live there. You wouldn't want to live there. We would consider that substandard. But if you consider it the uh, the realistic alternative is uh, living in a tent, hmm. then, um, you know, we should allow those types of things. And I, I mean, I think a good baseline is that if we allow college students to live in a certain type of housing, such as you have two roommates and you share a bathroom with two other units that also have two roommates hmm. and you don't have your own kitchen facility, we consider that fine. It's not luxurious, but we consider it uh, acceptable and not dehumanizing or something for college students. I think we should accept that that should be an option for other people. And that's the kind of thing that's going to make, uh, you know, a housing first strategy for dealing with homelessness um, 
more feasible. It's not necessarily, it's not going to solve the problem of homeless families, but it will solve the problem of homeless uh, single people, or at least make it much easier to address. I mean, I think you're, you're totally right on that. I mean, but it does bring up the issue of like, what, what does basic mean and who gets to, who gets to make that decision, right? I mean, so for example, you don't get your own kitchen when you're a freshman in a dorm, but that's partly because, you know, you're on a meal plan. So, and there, and, and, you know, unless we're gonna give homeless people or formerly homeless people a meal plan, uh, and say, and that's why you don't have a kitchen, um, then I think that that would be irresponsible. I mean, well, I, well, I, I mean, you can do that, right? You can it, it, imagine if, um, we allowed like an SRO slash dorm type situation. So basically we had a low quality housing that was legal, even as new construction, that didn't include kitchens, but we also relaxed SNAP so that it was possible to get, you know, two McDonald's hamburgers for a dollar ninety-eight with SNAP instead of saying that you can only buy groceries but not prepared food with SNAP. Gabe, you and I need to like sit down and and sketch out the solution to the homelessness problem. <laughs> <laughs> Gabe, what's going on with you? Okay, so I have a much lighter banter item. Um, so on my way home from uh, a very lovely visit to Duke recently, um, I saw John Wick 2 on the airplane. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw it as a marvelous exercise in theory. Ah, in particular, the economy. Tell. Yeah, so there's a very weird bit of world building in this little um, you know, alternate universe that's seemingly completely populated with assassins. <laughs> and um, the, what was interesting to me was their economy. And that there were uh, three different types of uh, uh, currency, basically. But they didn't seem to be fully fungible with each other. They seemed to be kind of partially fungible with each other. So on one level, you have regular money. And they would occasionally talk about things being denominated in regular U.S. dollars. And then you also had gold coins, which seemed to be newly minted gold coins, not like ancient treasure. And they also had these things called markers, which were kind of like a... A coin, but if you open the coin, you see that there's a place for a bloody thumbprint, and then the markers are recorded in like this double entry bookkeeping ledger type system. And I was watching it, and I was thinking, "Wow, this is just like Bahan in 1955 in American Anthropologist, where um, that's this famous Anthro article on uh, spears of exchange and investment among the Tiv, where he's looking at this ethnic group." in Nigeria called the TIV, T-I-V, and uh, he's saying that they have these multiple thing, sets of things that can be traded for each other, uh, mostly on a barter basis, um, but they're not really commensurable with each other. So at the lowest level, you have um, basically a subsistence economy of uh, kitchenware, food, basic food, and garden tools. So a shovel a cooking pot, a yam, that sort of thing. And, and any of those things can be traded for each other. And then you have a higher level of basically prestige goods that includes um, tagudu cloth, which is apparently some type of embroidered cloth, um, brass rods, and then traditionally, uh, oh, cattle, and then traditionally slaves. Mm. And then at the highest level, you have wives. And wives can only be exchanged for other wives. But um, you can't, but you, and so it's kind of possible to trade slaves for wives or brass rods for wives, but it's a little sketchy. And theoretically, you're only supposed to trade wives for wives. And it's kind of possible to trade uh, a sufficient number of shovels and yams for brass rods or slaves. But in theory, brass rods are tradable for slaves, but they're not tradable for chickens or yams, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's parallel economies. Yeah, and there's a notion that some of them are higher than the others, that there's, you know, as you get closer to people who are perceived as fully human, right? Mm. So wives are perceived as kind of fully human, and uh, but slaves are not. They're, they're with that kind of second tier where they're prestigious good, and, you know, they basically belong in the category of things where the more of them you have, the more of a big shot you are. They're a little different, and it struck me that this movie, which, you know, I don't think was directly inspired by um, this anthropology article had kind of reinvented it, right? And it's like, and it makes it a, you know, kind of a charming lived-in type universe um, where you're not just thinking like, oh, they're just spending things in money. It makes it more interesting that for certain things, they use 
regular money, and for certain things they use gold coins, and for certain things they use these things called markers, um, and they follow a similar type of escalation, that the more serious they are, uh, the, the more likely things are to be in that like higher level currency. They have something similar to that, or at least they did when uh, I visited Cuba some years ago. They have uh, two parallel uh, currencies. There is one that the foreigners use, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, fungible in the you know in the city center of Havana and at the uh, at the resorts and at the sort of tourist targeted uh, tourist targeted shops. And restaurants, and then there is a second currency, where uh, that is used by uh, the Cubans themselves in everyday life in sort of the non-tourist, uh, non-tourist economy, and, and it has the effect of uh, segregating, yeah. uh, uh, segregating uh, people. For example, it was difficult for us to acquire. We acquired some uh, local currency. And, uh, you know, just visited a restaurant like that and gave some mm-hmm. other money. It was much cheaper. But what it enabled, what, the way the way it worked in Cuba was, uh, in effect, you would, as a tourist, if you were operating in that economy, they had a very high markup that they were charging the foreigners. And then uh, it was much, much cheaper to be in the uh, Cuban part, the part mm-hmm. that uh, served the uh, native Cubans. Yeah, and my understanding is that that basically serves as a way to attract a uh, hard currency for the regime. Um, <clears throat> this is, I mean, that, that's a good, in, in a good illustration, right? Where you have like a tourist market that's based on the local currency versus hard currency. I also experienced a little of that when I visited Russia in high school, um, back at a time when it was still going through the, uh, immediate post-socialist transition. Uh, these are slightly different in that, uh, David Graeber, the anthropologist mm-hmm. refers to these sort of things as human currencies in that you, you very often have, and a kind of a day-to-day economy that either exists with like a simple currency or that exists on a barter basis. But at the higher level, you have um, a currency that is somewhat sacred and is mostly used only for settling debts of human life or arranging human uh, arrangement, basically major life course events. And typically these things are used to arrange marriages or to settle wrongful death suits. And so whenever you read about, you know, some... Uh, Neolithic culture had money, it's typically not money that you would use for buying your daily groceries in the same way that we use it. This special money of like, you know, giant stone coins or, you know, anything uh, exotic sounding like that, those were typically only used for um, wrongful death suits and marriages and that sort of thing. Cool. Yeah. You know, so thinking about, so bring it back to theory, right? So every once in a while, I teach theory. And what I love to do with the undergrads is I like to pair one of our classical, one of our our, our classical masters with a movie, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, the Hunger Games with Marx, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm trying to think of what else. In Time with uh, Weber and Bureaucracy. Basically the entire 101 course. Yeah. (laughs) And that, and and that, so now I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about, um, about John Wick too, right? You know, do you think that I could actually get them to think about Zimmel and like, and like a note on the philosophy of money, for example, um, by, by watching this and thinking specifically about these kinds of exchange, that the, the types of exchange that they have. Yeah, very possibly. And you could definitely get them to think about mouse and other mm-hmm. like, economic anthropology by uh, watching this movie. I mean, there's also an enormous number of people getting shot in the head and that sort of thing in this movie. Yeah, they love it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I need to give some uh, some warnings. Yeah. Some trigger warnings. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> okay, and now our guest, uh, Daniel Friedman. Uh, Daniel is a sociologist from the University of Texas at Austin. Hello, how are you? Thanks for inviting me to this. Thank you very much for being here. How are things in Austin? Uh, It's all good. We've been spared of the uh, worst part of Hurricane Harvey. It's not nothing like Houston or or other towns close to Austin. So Austin is good. What's Austin sociology uh, talking about these days? Well, this we we have a a very big department. It's a nice thing. We have a, a variety of people and many, many graduate students. So it's uh, pretty lively here. And Austin in general is um, 
how to put it, uh, liberal, uh, tolerant city compared probably to other parts of Texas. So it's a, it's a good place to, to do sociology. Um, we have guns here. Uh, oh, I know. Yeah. Uh, well, you have guns on campus? Yes. Uh, not open carry. Open carry has been, uh, it was legalized last year outside of campus. In campus, we moved from no guns at all to concealed carry. So, um, yeah, that is, it's a bit, a bit, you know, stressful, but, uh, I, I don't, you know, I come from another country from Argentina. So the whole gun thing is still something I'm trying to understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially around, you know, exam time. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'd be pretty nervous. Yeah. I mean, uh, n- nothing has happened yeah, I try not to think much about it. What are you going to do? Yeah, it's like, you get an A+, plus, you yeah. get an A+, plus, you get an A+. Yeah. Plus. We should study the Everybody effect can... on grade inflation, though. So. Yeah, no <laughs> well, it's great to have you here. Thanks a lot for joining us. We're going to be talking about uh, your book in a bit. But before that, we're going to do a segment, What I'm Reading. These uh, This is a segment where we talk about uh, things that we've been reading or writing. And uh, Gabriel and I started an exchange on uh, Twitter uh, last week, and we stopped ourselves, and uh, we said, let's let's save this for the podcast. Uh, it's from 538, and if you don't know it, it's one of the, those more stats-intensive news sites. I love it. I read it regularly. I listen to their podcasts, all that. Uh, let, me, let me give a quick summary of the article, Gabe, and then maybe you can sort of uh, talk about the... Uh, the contrasting piece. Sound good? Yeah, sure. All right, cool. So the article that I read, it was called America's Shifting Religious Makeup Could Spell Trouble for Both Parties. And I'll, I'll post a link to it on the show page. And uh, it reports on a huge survey. It says 101,000 nationwide, which honestly is a sample size that would raise a red flag for me. But <laughs> let's, yeah, it's very big, but let's not detain ourselves on that point. And it's from the uh, Public Religion Research Institute. Does anybody know of that institute? I've never heard of it. it. You know, there's several things with similar names, and I'm not sure which one it is. Yeah. So it, it's like I could have heard of it, or I could be confusing it with something else. Yeah, it's not a university, and I haven't heard of it, so that's red flag number two. But let's not detain ourselves on that. In any case, the headline empirical finding is that the young are abandoning religion, And uh, religious whites are aging out. And that's something that's not surprising to me. It's something I feel I've heard it. It's consistent with my worldview. So it's normal science here. But I really like the article because it presents an interesting question about politics and demography. And I wanted to talk about it with my uh, stats class. So I posted it. Uh, It suggests that Republicans have a strong edge among uh, white Christians, religious Christians, while Democrats seem to have an edge among the religiously unaffiliated and there, the argument is that that, that change uh, of uh, religious non-affiliation among the youth might mean that, uh, you know, politics are going to have to shift. Even the Republicans are going to have to change their platform or find a wedge issue. But when I think about the relationship, I'm thinking about it the way the article does. It's seeing religious change as a causal factor and the political shifts as a consequence. And Gabriel, you had something very different. Yeah, well, I, I agree that there is a strong relationship between um, religious identity, especially religiosity, um, it, which denomination you belong to doesn't matter as much as it. So the old culture war was basically Protestant versus Catholic, right? So if you think of kind of a stylized example of the 50s or especially like go back to like 1900, everybody went to church, but Protestants hated Catholics. And vice versa. And that's what a lot of our uh, political debates were about. The, you know, when you think of like the Thomas Nass cartoons of the bishops like crocodiles crawling out of the uh, Potomac River. Anyway, but um, our current culture war is basically between intensely religious people, people who have high church attendance, people with low church attendance. And there's a few exceptions to that of people who have high church attendance, but still kind of caucus with the low attendance group. But that being said, Um, So I agree that there is a strong relationship between religion and politics, but I don't think it all goes in one way. And in particular, I'm thinking of uh, Houghton Fisher's sociological science article from two years ago, which was a replication of an article by the same authors in ASR a few years before that. And they're looking at the growth in religious nuns, Uh, not nuns like um, religious sisters, but nuns as in 
you know, the null set, N-O-N-E. Like, and, no, they're religiously unaffiliated. They have no religion. Or, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So people, when you ask them, what religion are you, instead of saying, you know, I'm a Reformed Jew or I'm an Episcopalian or I'm a Catholic or whatever, um, they say, I have no religion. Hmm. And that group has grown appreciably uh, since the GSS started being collected. Um I don't have the article in front of me, but it's something like 10% to 30%. Now, it wasn't the case that 90% of people ever went to church regularly, but a lot of people at least identified with a denomination, even if they um, didn't actively participate in it or weren't members of a congregation. So, for instance, a lot of people would say they were Jews, even if they weren't members of a temple and, you know, didn't have the coveted season pass that gave them <laughs> high holiday tickets and that sort of thing. Um, season pass. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you you can't get the the uh, the tickets for the uh, for the finals if you don't have the uh, season pass. That's how a, how a synagogue works. <laughs> anyway, so um, so you have a lot more people now, something like thirty percent, who openly don't identify with a religion at all. Now, the parsimonious explanation for that would be to say there's less belief in God, right? That mm-hmm. people don't. Uh, participate in religion because they don't believe in it. But the interesting thing is that there's actually relatively little growth in atheism. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Atheism has grown, but not very much. And there's this huge gap where something like 10% of people are atheists, but 30% of people um, don't identify, not, not even don't participate, but just don't identify with any religion. And so about 20% of the U.S. population now um, believe in God, but aren't religiously affiliated. Hmm. And they're and they're especially looking at this group, and they're saying that a lot of it is driven by um, culture wars mm-hmm. and that um, people who have um, kind of sexual, uh, sexual revolution attitudes towards sexuality and to a lesser extent uh, issues of drugs, um, they basically think uh, religion's bad for the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the political party, but like the, you know, party yeah. party. Yes. The good times. And Lowercase. Yeah, exactly. The, exactly. The, the basically, uh, you know, God or more to the point, your your preacher is a killjoy. Hmm. And um, and so on this. And so they're arguing that it's really the um, sexual revolution and changes in sexual attitudes that are driving the decline in uh, religious identification you know, so in a way, it's politics and in particular culture war that's driving the decline in political identification, in religious identification, not the other way around. Right. So, but to, can I, I just have a question. So to be fair, it's not just about your own personal sexual moray. That's also people who are more inclusive, you know, who may or may not, for example, be gay themselves. Right. But are part of a congregation that condemns homosexuality Right. You know, they're also part of that equation. Right, Gabe? Yeah, I think that would absolutely be true that I mean, you know, depending on how you measure it, something Uh like, uh, you know, if if you if you go with the most something like two to five percent of Americans are gay, Uh um, but, you know, much, much higher uh, numbers of people, uh, you know, answer the what GSS calls homosex you know, this is the name of the variable, as basically um, there's nothing wrong with same-sex intercourse. And um, we've seen huge shifts in approval for uh, same-sex intercourse, and we've seen huge shifts in approval for gay marriage. And uh, this seems to be one of the things that's driving it. And so, and exactly like you're saying, Leslie, this is not necessarily about people saying religion is telling me I can't do what I want to do. It's saying Religion is telling people with whom I sympathize that they can't do what they want to do. So, yeah, I, I, I was thinking of these two questions of religious affiliation and belief in God uh, and wondering, I'm, I'm sure there's also people who have not any visible or recognizable uh, affiliation or participation, but to the question of do you believe in God or not, uh, they, I mean, they, they, it's it's a it's a more uh, sort of metaphysical decision of whether you believe in God in God or not, which is different from whether you participate in religion. So I'm I'm wondering if part of that difference is also explained by people saying, "Yeah, I believe in God. I mean, it doesn't hurt, but uh, um, but it doesn't mean really that 
um, that they are uh, participating. But maybe the question is asked in a way that, that I don't know more specifically. Well, the questions are pretty straightforward. I mean, GSS questions are typically one or two sentences. And uh, the, the, the question on religion is basically, what, what religion do you identify with? And there's a list of 100 that they check off. And then, uh, and then there's also a separate question about how often you go to church. And, uh, you know, we know that people lie about that, that people roughly double the amount they go to church. But it's still useful as an ordinal mm-hmm. variable. Um, and then the question on do you believe in God is basically, do you believe in God? I kind of think there's a God, but I have some doubts, or I don't believe in God. So basically, do you believe in God, or are you an atheist, or are you an agnostic? Um, you do know, they separate it, atheists and agnostics? Like, I see atheism as uh, as a strong response that still treats religion as a highly salient issue, and that the agnostics are the ones who can't even be bothered to think about the topic. Well, yeah, but I mean, we're, but we're talking about a group that's even more squishy, right? So we're not talking about... You know, uh, people like Dawkins-style new atheists, where they're like evangelical mm-hmm. atheists, right? They're so uh, militant in their atheism that it's a major part of their identity. We're, we're talking about people who still believe in God. Mm-hmm. It's not a terribly salient part of their identity that they believe in God. But right. if you ask them, do you believe that there's a higher power? I thought they'll say sure. You know, but um, but they still don't affiliate with religion, so they're not so. Um, disenchanted or oppositional or whatever you want to say that they believe, reject belief in God altogether. They, they almost by definition, you have, these are people who have somewhat ambivalent attitudes and, and that's where maybe you see they the believe growth. in God, but they don't fear things. God. <laughs> that's the difference. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I was thinking about this too, and that in the big picture, I occasionally, I, I haven't written this up anywhere, not even as a blog post, but I sometimes think of this as St. Valentine's dialectic, in that if you look historically, um, the, the church is a major source of the companionate idea of love, and the idea that love is f- first and foremost about the free choice of individuals to enter into a partnership, and it's not under the control of their families, and it's not entirely about procreation. And you can go back to, you know, um, prayer books from the early modern era or even the Renaissance that talk about this. There's even there's some um, hints of that even earlier, such as St. Valentine himself. Right. And historically, one of the things the Catholic Church did was it uh, gave young people more power to choose their own marriages without the approval of their clans. Um, And that, you know, was like an early example of building up our, our current notion of companionate love. And now this notion of companionate love that's about the free choice of individuals to enter into a love relationship that is fundamentally about their own personal mm-hmm. feelings is so well entrenched that um, it's alienating many people from organized religion. So it fits the, defi- the classic definition of a dialectic of something that creates its own destruction. In this case, the church uh, destroying itself through um, giving people this very romantic, companionate conception of love. So one of the things that that I'll say is, you know, as a lapsed Catholic myself, Uh and someone who was raised uh, very deeply Catholic, um, you know, and once I decided that, uh, long story short, I read Revelations and I was like, you know what, this isn't for me. I was around 15 when that happened. Um, But... You know, what I have to know. Did you read it allegorically or did you read it like there's an actual dragon? Like, like who did you think the uh, dragon was? Did you think it was the Roman Empire or did you think it was a monster? So when you read it at 15, at first I read it allegorically. And then my question was, why is it that I'm supposed to read some of these books allegorically and some of these things I'm supposed to read fundamentally? Right. And that's when I started to doubt right um and when you're catholic once you start to doubt it's a slippery slope um so but one of the things that i've noticed i mean i don't i i don't have a faith um i don't attend i don't attend church regularly but my but my husband and my children do and i would say that at least half of the congregation there and it's a huge congregation um they're episcopal are all people who left the catholic church and almost all of them are in, are left leaning, right? And so I'm wondering whether or not we also see we also see a trend of people who are still 
you know, identifying with, um, with a faith or a faith tradition, right? Um, but because of their politics, they're shifting from one faith to the next. Yeah, and, and there's the opposite version of that in that I know some people who were Catholic but are now Eastern Orthodox, mm. you know, and kind of for the opposite. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that you would think that it would lead towards um, people uh, switching to the religions that are more compatible with contemporary morality, mm-hmm. right? That you would think it would lead towards um, people switching, you know, that if people don't want to be Catholic or Southern Baptist or whatever— because it's uh, too strict on either their sex or the sex of people with whom they sympathize, that they would switch and become Episcopalian, where the Episcopalian church, at least in England and the United States, not necessarily in Africa, uh, is very uh, accommodating. But in fact, those churches just have declining membership. You know, that you see even more declining membership among the mainline Protestant churches um, than you and you know than you do among the uh, stricter churches, and there there seems to be kind of a dynamic where uh, you know not for Matt and your kids, but for many people, there's kind of a like, okay, it's not okay. Well, now I'll go to a church that um, is more compatible with what I believe now, but more I'll just sleep in on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and now let's turn to uh, Daniel Friedman. Uh, Daniel. Uh, we want to hear about your new book, Freedom from Work, Embracing Financial Self-Help in the United States and Argentina. It's uh, published by uh, Stanford. Uh, when did it come out? Late last year, November uh, 2016. Tell us about it. It's a book about uh, people who read uh, books on how to become rich, uh, which technically is not becoming rich, but actually acquiring financial freedom, which... Uh, translates into the title of the book, which is Freedom from Work. Uh, and so I did uh, ethnography and interviews with um, fans of uh, mostly Robert Kiyosaki, who is the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, a series of books. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, for those of us who don't know it? If you're not uh, familiar with it, you might have seen it in bookstores or in uh, um, airport bookstores or so on. It's a series of books uh, authored uh, by uh, this guy, Robert Kiyosaki, who's really the most uh, successful brand of financial self-help or of self-help applied to financial issues. Uh, And it basically recommends people to uh, develop their uh, financial intelligence and sort of change themselves into a person with the conditions to become financially free, which means uh, almost literally that your money can work for you instead of you working for your money. So this this is not like get rich quick, but rather... Uh, the idea is that this is difficult, that you have to, to work on yourself, you have to learn, uh, you know, technical stuff about finance. Uh, and there, there are several books. The fa- most famous one is called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, What the Rich uh, Teach Their Kids About Money That the Middle Class and the Poor Do Not. Uh, but there's a, a bunch of other books that uh, sort of uh, some a bit more... Uh, go a bit deeper than others, but essentially the idea is that you should uh, start figuring out a path to uh, not working and benefiting from the work and the time of others uh, or or the work of your your money can do. And what was the big insight that you felt emerged from the experience of seeing this community? You know, to me, the the most important thing and the, the thing that made me the most curious about it is... Uh, you know, I, I saw these books before thinking of it as a topic for, for my own book. And I thought, you know, these are, you know, there must be tons of books like this telling you how to become rich and so on. But I actually found that it's quite consistent in terms of promoting, uh, the notion that you have to be free from the dependence, uh, that both, 
uh, institutions might, uh, you know, put on you, sort of be independent from the state or from social security or from things like that. Actually, depending from your own job and your paycheck, in a way you have to fight your own uh, sort of tendency to prefer the security of a, of a paycheck and, uh, and so on to, uh, um, and, and instead try to be more entrepreneurial and be more free and so on. And also, uh, the, I, I, it, one of the things I found is that uh, people like Robert Kiyosaki also tells people how the world works. They tell you, you know, this is how the class system works, right? They call it a, a quadrant, a, the cash flow quadrant. Uh, and this is how the world has changed uh, in the last 40 to 50 years, uh, and people should not rely so much as they did on uh, the security of a job and so on. So, uh, in a way, what at attracted my attention is that a lot of what they were saying, uh, to some extent, was not that different from what sociologists have been discovering about the world in the last, uh, you know, few decades. So I was like, well, there's something here. So uh, one thing that I uh, I see as a, a, a theme from what I book, and I did enjoy your book, um, was this idea that these types of self-help books are uh, involved with uh, sort of the promotion of neoliberalism or uh, the promotion of, uh, uh, you evoke Foucault with this idea of governmentality. Yeah. Can you, can yes, you talk about well, that? Uh, can, I, can I just also piggyback yes. on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I would actually like to know how you define neoliberalism, how you, and, and then how do you like operationalize that? Because I'm sorry, I, I sometimes I feel like neoliberalism for just I, I don't know more and more is just equated with everything that's yeah, wrong yeah, with absolutely. the world. Oh come um, on, Leslie, that's a right? term with very clear meaning that everybody <laughs> agrees on. And uses yeah, no, you're you're totally right, Leslie, and. Um, I actually, um, I actually hate uh, the sort of use of neoliberalism when it's just to mean mm. everything that's wrong, uh, and <laughs> and and people do that. So I, in the book, I discuss uh, at the very beginning, you know, what I mean by that, and you know, it's not a perfect definition, but at least uh, using this idea of governmentality. Uh, to me, neoliberalism is, um, I mean, I don't define it either as a set of policies or as an ideology, but rather a, as, a, as a governmentality, which is uh, an idea of how um, we conduct the conduct of others and of oneself and, and of ourselves. What do you mean by that? Basically, when you think in terms of power, how you should get other people to do uh, what you want, which is basically Weber's uh, definition, and and how you should get yourself to do uh, what you would want uh, to be doing, right? So in a way, what Foucault does is say conducting the conduct of others and conducting one's conduct is sort of part of the same problem. And, and what neoliberalism... Uh, I think it's it's interesting to think it in this way because uh, it's sort of it's a way of thinking people as people who can uh, make themselves free, uh, make themselves into entrepreneurs of their own lives and responsible of their own lives. Uh, so essentially, I take neoliberalism in through that sort of channel of, in essence, it's a way of governing people by uh, turning them into independent entrepreneurial subjects. Hmm. So, I, so, I have a, so I have a question because you're looking at people in the United States and Argentina, right? And, and I'm wondering whether or not you, I, by the way, I'm, I'm going to buy the book now. <laughs> um, so, but forgive me for my ignorance since I haven't read it yet. Um, I'm wondering if you find any significant differences between Americans and Argentinians um, in how they respond to um, 
how they respond to these kinds of books. And because from, and, and one of the reasons why I'm asking is I feel like part of what I'm hearing are these sort of echoes from the Protestant ethic, right? It's just that, you know, today, you know, one of the ways in which you show your value is through freeing yourself from work and freeing yourself from, you know, this government, you know, apparatus or from someone else being your boss, right? And that's how, that's how we, we know that we are chosen. And I'm wondering whether or not that's different in the United yeah. States versus Argentina. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, don't apologize for not having, I mean, it's not ignorance. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, uh, so um, I think, um, the, the, the main thing I found comparing the U.S. and Argentina, and by the way, most of the book I use both cases, but then uh, okay. there's a chapter in which I say, okay, what happens in Argentina with this? Because all of these books are American and they're exported all over the world uh, and they are translated actually uh, literally so they talk about I don't know 401k. You read the, <laughs> you read the translation. It's a 401k. <laughs> and you need to figure out what the hell you're talking about. Um, but essentially, Argentinians the, their first reaction is, oh, this is for Americans. I mean, we have a you know our country is always in the middle of financial crisis. Nothing works. You know, we have this sort of uh, high self esteem in some ways but very low self-esteem in others. But, but, but literally in Argentina, there is a, a pretty uh, major crisis every decade or so. So essentially what Argentinians have to do is how do we read this American thing about investing long-term and getting money work for me and so on and so forth in the context of this country where, where nothing works, where, where uh, you, know, you put your money in the bank and it might you know, be taken as it happened in 2001. And so on and so forth. So, so what they do is they, they have to take a, a bit of additional steps than the Americans in terms of saying, let's disentangle the like philosophy, the ideas here that you should be free, that you should have your money work for you and so on from the actual advice of engaging in real estate or getting in the stock market and so on. Uh, so basically they try, they, they need to to come up with ways of uh, first disentangling the philosophy and then saying, how do we do this here? Okay, so that's sort of the major, uh, but but the, to me, the interesting thing is that the comparison was somewhat done by the people themselves because they know, they, re they read the things or they play the, the board game. There's a board game called cash flow, And the first reaction is like, dude, this, I mean, this is weird. Is it, is, it, is it so easy in the U.S.? They would ask me, like, is it so easy in the U.S.? Because here, you, you know, it's not as easy to get a credit and, and so on. And what do you say to them? Is it that easy in the U.S.? It's, uh, it's not as, uh, as easy as the books and the games uh, portrayed, but hmm. the very notion of getting credit to invest in real estate, at least a few years ago, was was more in the menu of options than it was in Argentina. So I'm trying to channel my uh, internal economist. And uh, one thing that I, I imagine an economist might say is that, well, you know, individualism and competition, these are facts of life, right? Like people look out for themselves. They're responsible for themselves. People compete. And, and moreover, most people or a lot of people are uh, lack a basic financial literacy, like they just don't understand some basic concepts of managing their personal money. And they might view something like rich dad, poor dad as a very positive force. And uh, is something that trains people to deal with the realities of our market economy. Uh, what do you think of that type of view? Now, I, I think you make, you make a great point, partly because, uh, I mean, generally, even let's, let's put it this way, even people who are sort of progressive and wants to reduce inequality, part of the inequality today has to do with having less or less advantages access to uh, banking and financial system, uh, managing finance. I think there's a bit of an, an excess of faith in the idea that the problems of uh, inequality uh, have to do with people not getting the right financial education. 
Uh, and a lot of people probably are going to drift towards something like uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad as opposed to other uh, financial pro uh, programs designed for other purposes. Because what, what Rich Dad Poor Dad will tell you is that it's not, oh, you should you know, manage your finances better or, you know, just save a little bit of money. That's, that's also considered a loser attitude. It's really, you should, it's much more aggressive than that. So I think both things are related. And I, I discussed a little bit of that in the, in the conclusion, the sort of financial literacy programs and, and, and the more aggressive rich dad or financial self-help uh, world. Uh, but the, the, the point I, I also make in the conclusion is that a lot of, uh, of the sort of, uh, I don't like the word values, but a lot of the, the, the values, the project of the self that these uh, books advocate are hard to disentangle from the sort of technical advice about how you keep your finance, your manage finance, and you start a business and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, so in a way, many times programs of uh, financial education and financial literacy sort of try to um, address these issues as a problem of technical knowledge, but it's very hard to separate it from a particular shape in which you, you want to you want to be and you want to make yourself into the sort of free and entrepreneurial person who knows how to take risks and so on and so forth. So I, I was, you know, when I think of like financial education, I usually think of things like, uh, you know, keep a budget, maintain a budget, don't buy frivolous things on debt financing, mm -hmm. you know, only buy serious things on debt financing when absolutely necessary. Say, you know, don't use things that are high interest rates etc cetera, etc cetera. so and i know that there are some financial education things so like a friend of mine who's a financial journalist says that dave ramsey uh says that sort of thing and it's generally yeah. good advice um but this is more like here's how to invest assets and be a winner and you know um and not even have to like in your title right not even have to work but just live on uh exploiting assets and it just sets off every alarm bell i have about scams <laughs> and so I'm wondering to what extent <clears throat> is this a scam uh, in either a limited sense or a broad sense? So by the limited sense, I mean just that, you know, these things turn into pyramid mm -hmm. schemes, uh, you know, where somebody like sell, you know, either it's literally a pyramid scheme or there's some type of product that you're supposed to buy. And then you're supposed to, you know, like a, um, what do they call it? Multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing, thank you. Um, and then, you know, kind of the, the broader level scam would be something where there's not necessarily a pyramid scheme per se, <clears throat> but there's something that turns out to be really stupid in retrospect, such as the idea that you should borrow money to buy a house that you can't afford to make the payments on because it's going to appreciate so much that you can just flip mm -hmm. it. You know, so, uh, you know, which is obviously what happened in the, the mid basically in the uh, Bush administration, especially the second term and led to the financial crisis. So th to what extent is this scammy, either in the limited sense or the broad yeah, sense? Well, that's a good question. I think um, scams are um, sort of floating around this sort of fluid world. I, I wouldn't call, um, you know, the, the whole enterprise of financial self-help scam, although it, in, it includes scams, mm -hmm. because I think it's uh, much larger than that. And as I said, the most important uh, sort of theater is this idea of transforming yourself. Um, mm -hmm. That said, uh, let me tell you a fieldwork story. I go to play uh, cash flow, this board game, uh, in Argentina for a whole day and there are seminars and so on. And by the end of the day, this group uh, that organized the game and actually, you know, provided uh, some knowledge, whatever you think about that knowledge, uh, besides lunch and coffee and so on, uh, start, start selling their uh, multi-level marketing company. Uh, and, and explain to people, you know, this is not part of the workshop, but if you're interested in a business, uh, do you like working from home? You know, you know, that sort of. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, and my, re my reaction was, oh, <laughs> this is all. I mean, this was a whole preparation for this. And I, 
and I started looking at other people's reactions and they didn't have the same kind of reaction. And so I started looking more into that. And what I found is that um, the idea that you can help someone, you know, providing whatever uh, information, knowledge, motivation or whatever was not incompatible for them with the idea that you can make money off of it. Uh, and mm-hmm. what to me was some sort of violation, uh, for them it was actually uh, okay. I mean, you can mix these things. And actually, uh, I, I, I call that chapter creating the world of a, a world of abundance because someone said you mm-hmm. should live in a world of abundance, not a world of scarcity, so you should help others. It's going to come back. Uh, and so the idea of doing business and at the same time helping others appears uh, compatible there. And that's also why people are not that bothered by someone like uh, Robert Kiyosaki selling sort of the same book over and over because, you know, after the first one, two or three books uh, is, uh, you know, it's pretty much the same thing, but people are not bothered by that. They say, wouldn't you do the same thing? I mean, they can actually help people and at the same time make money off of it. Mm-hmm. All right, we're running a little bit low on time. I got a couple of quick questions for you, and then we got to wrap it up, Danny. Uh, one is uh, we really like methods here, and you use a blend of participant observation and content analysis, and you do it uh, in a comparative study. And we're always growing as researchers. Well, how did you develop in terms of the craft of research? Like, what tips would you pass on to somebody who is interested in adopting your approach in their own work? Well, I think, I mean, uh, some basic ethnographic ideas. I mean, I didn't go there to a world that was sort of different than mine, with people reading things that were not what I read all the time, and with different uh, sort of approach. Uh, to sort of confront what they were doing. I went out to learn and to make sense uh, of their uh, ideas and their practices in their own coherence. So usually that's something I try to teach students about, saying you need to you need to bring some theoretical ideas around with you, you know, some uh, some things you're interested in. But uh, you can start, you can study people who are, who live different lives from yours by trying to, uh, by, by not trying to confront your own ideas with theirs, or in case you do actually get something interesting out of that confrontation, as in when I, as in the case that I just told you about, when I reacted in a way and I saw people reacting differently, I said, well, let's uh, hear how people are thinking about this. And now, a word from Editor Bain. Your revisions must be more severe. After you have added non-sequiturs and cited complete gibberish, then you have my permission to withdraw the manuscript and submit elsewhere. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. We're on the web. It's theannexpodcast.com on Twitter at SochAnnex. You can hear us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thank you very much to Daniel Friedman of the University of Texas at Austin. His book is Freedom from Work, Embracing Financial Self-Help in the United States and Argentina from Stanford University Press. On behalf of Gabriel Rossman and Leslie Hinkson, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you.